Today by Professor Akaha. He's a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. welcome. So, pleasure. Our, our pleasure to have you here. Uh, we, you know, we're hoping to maybe start with a little bit of an introduction to you. You're, you know, a prolific author. You've uh, written over a hundred journal articles, and you know, you've been in this field for a long time. So, could you kind of give us um, just a quick intro to, you know, what got you here, what you've been working on recently? Okay. Uh, I pursued my graduate studies at the University of Southern California in the previous century. <laughs> and IR, as a field back then, was dominated by political science. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly about relationships between states. Mm -hmm. Very little references to people. Right. But over the last uh, 15 years or so, I have been introduced to field research opportunities dealing with uh, human security, international migration. Mm -hmm. So on the ground level, uh, interactions between people from different cult cultures and countries. Right. And uh, part of that introduction took me to the Russian Far East before the Soviet Union collapsed. Right, yeah. And I had an opportunity to engage with uh, Russians in Vladivostok, in Habarovsk, and in uh, Nahotka. So that got me very curious about Russia's place in the world. And then during the Cold War, Russia had very little interaction with mm -hmm. uh, Japan which is my home country. Sure. So I got uh, interested very much in collaborating with Russian scholars and Japanese scholars uh, right. about the possibility of bringing Russia into the fold in the context of uh, dynamic East Asian mm -hmm. uh, economic development. And I've been pursuing that general interest uh, ever since. And uh, in the last several years, I've been doing interviews and uh, research field research, engaging Russians in Japan uh, Russians in Northeast China uh, as immigrants, mm -hmm. and uh, lots of uh, anecdotal interesting stories if you're <laughs> interested in this as well. Sure. Uh, but um, then I'm also broadening my geographical horizon to incorporate uh, parts of the world that, are, that have not been traditionally my fields of research, mm -hmm. including uh, Bordeaux, France. I happened to be uh, on sabbatical there last fall. Sure, so I got wonderful. to interview and do research uh, uh, into the status of uh, immigrants, asylum mm -hmm. seekers, and uh, refugees mm -hmm. in the French political context. And the challenges they're facing, both on the part of the state, uh, the government, public uh, institutions, and the individual migrants and asylum seekers, uh, parallel the experiences of many non-Japanese in Japan, non-Chinese in China, uh, non-Russians in Russia. Right. So uh, there's... I think a uh, uh, general universal theme about the importance of uh, helping these people uh, integrate into the local communities in which they have decided to settle permanently uh, without disturbing, if you will, the political social stability of the host communities, uh, which is a normative uh, idea. Mm -hmm. But first, you have to start with uh, you know, ground level description of what's going on, how many people are moving in, moving out, right. what kind of uh, legal status they have, mm -hmm. including an undocumented status, meaning sure. illegal status. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think each country has a lot to offer to other countries in terms of how they've been successful in managing transporter migration, as well as how they have failed 
in facilitating smooth uh, transition and right. integration into the local communities. Mm -hmm. And Japan is uh, an example of a country that used to be uh, extremely uh, closed yes. to foreigners. And I would say even today, culturally and socially speaking, foreigners are seen as foreigners. Yes. Even those who are born in Japan, mm -hmm. if they looked non-Japanese. Yeah, or hafu. Yeah, hafu, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, but the Japanese government has realized that the demographic situation is such that they have to open their labor market uh, earlier uh, to uh, highly skilled migrants. Mm -hmm. But now they have realized that uh, uh, other sectors of the economy also need uh, a lot of uh, laborers, mm -hmm. mostly from China, Southeast Asia, a few from Korea, uh, in the sectors such as a nurse, you know, nursing, uh, uh, medical uh, assistance, wealth, general welfare, things of that sort. But uh, in the past, the Japanese government did not allow any foreigners to engage in uh, low-skilled labor. That was totally prohibited. Hmm. And the only way they could do it is to open some windows through what is called a technical uh, internship. Uh, it's called a technical internship. So foreign migrants come into Japan in the low-skilled uh, uh, labor sector, but actually engage in unskilled labor as workers, as cheap labor for Japanese companies that were desperate to find uh, you know, extra labor. Right, yeah. So it was uh, in a legal, legally structured regime, but what the foreigners were doing were basically typical manual labor right. with very low pay, mm -hmm. sometimes delayed payment. So there's a lot of uh, human rights violations, abuses on the part of these people. And uh, something similar is happening all around the world, including here in the United States. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I think there are a lot of uh, universal themes mm -hmm. uh, that revolve around that legal and uh, uh, not so legal yeah. uh, transport and migration. So that's my current uh, preoccupation. General gist of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know the status of Russian immigration to Japan, um, because as personally someone who has lived in Japan. I, I was actually a little bit surprised to hear about that because I, I didn't get a chance to meet too many Russians, and this was sort of news to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Russians uh, in Japan are a very small uh, segment of foreign population in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go to Hokkaido, and if you go to Akita mm -hmm. or Niigata, you do see quite a few uh, Caucasian-looking people. And the people on the ground assume they're Russians because they assume that uh, Westerners, Americans, Canadians, uh, New Zealanders, Australians, uh, British will typically go to major cities. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh, like Osaka, mm -hmm. Tokyo, and maybe Kyoto for cultural right. educational reasons. Uh, but quite a few of these uh, uh, Caucasian-looking uh, people in these prefectures facing the Sea of Japan, across from Russia and uh, Korea, mm -hmm. are Russian. So uh, I was interested with my colleague, Anna Vasilieva, who mm -hmm. is also teaching at the Middlebury Institute, in engaging them to find out what their cultural experiences were vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis Japanese local population. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to conduct uh, a couple hundred interviews with Russians in these locations. And uh, one time I went to uh, Niigata, the city of Niigata, and interviewed the Russian uh, consul general. 
and uh, asked him about how many Russians are resident in Niigata. Yeah. And he said, we don't have very firm official statistic because many Russians come to Japan, mm -hmm. but they don't inform government authorities, Russian government authorities huh. of uh, their presence there. Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as they could uh, uh, manage to collect some information, many of them are Russian women. Quite a few of them are actually married to Japanese men, oh, wow, okay. which gives them a legal status to retain, uh, remain in Japan as long as they would like to. Hmm. So we got to interview some of these uh, Russian women, mm -hmm. and one of them actually said, uh, my marriage is a marriage of convenience. Because she wanted to stay there as long as she could. Right. Because if she were back in Russia, in the Russian Far East, mm -hmm. Vladivostok, for example, it was extremely difficult for college graduates and other edu well-educated Russians to find uh, gainful employment. Right, yeah. So they came to Japan thinking, uh, you know, things will be much more uh, promising for them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then soon realized that they could only extend their uh, visa once. And when they come to Japan, they can stay for 90 days. Mm -hmm. On the 90th day, you either have to leave the country yeah. or renew your visa. Mm -hmm. But if you married a Japanese citizen, you could live there you know, almost per in perpetuity. Indefinitely, so that's yeah. what they decided to do. Uh, also, in, when you go to Hokkaido, mm -hmm. several port cities, uh, also in uh, the eastern side, the western side, northern side of uh, Hokkaido, you see some street signs in uh, Russian, because the local merchants need Russian visitors, right. including sailors, mm -hmm. to sustain their economy, sustain their business, because these are very provincial rural areas, and not very many Japanese spend a lot of money visiting these port cities. Yeah. So they love Russians coming there. So that began to have an impact in improving local Japanese perception of Russians who would come there. Historically, in terms of Cold War period, most Japanese thought the Russians were you know, people from almost evil empire. <laughs> well, it didn't help as well that, you know, they were going to onsen and thinking that they were banya and mm -hmm. just breaking all of the rules. That's, that's what right. I heard about. That's that's like what I've like, oh, yeah, like that. This is why like that stigma of like foreigners and onsen, like yeah, it there kind are, of started up north. There are some uh, legal cases in Ot Ot Otaru. You probably heard, have heard of them. I peripherally, yeah. Yeah. And these signs said, uh, no foreigners mm -hmm. allowed. Yeah. And uh, foreigners in that context meant uh, Russians who didn't know how to, you know, manage their affairs in a bathtub <laughs> or in the bathroom. <laughs> it was a fault not only on, on their part, mm -hmm. but also on the part of uh, Japanese who could have given them some orientation to Japanese sure, culture, yeah. Japanese manners. But they didn't, it was a fairly recent phenomenon. So they didn't know how to manage these uh, affairs, human relations uh, in a cross-cultural context. But I think since then they have learned how to do that that's, quite well. That's very encouraging, yeah, mm -hmm. that that's a little bit better and like there's a little bit more communication happening and interaction that's more positive. Mm -hmm. um, but that's actually a perfect lead into the uh, presentation that I was lucky enough to sit in on yesterday um, where you spoke um, about the vestige of history and cold peace between Russia and Japan. Um, and I, I found it very fascinating that you kind of discussed um, sort of the recent developments that have happened between Russia and Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, but could we start with having you define cold peace? Because it's not a phrase I see often. And I, even when I was writing it down, I automatically wrote cold war and had to cross it out and write cold peace. Uh -huh. 
Okay, well, Cold War is over. Right. And we were hoping uh, with uh, euphoria, a sense of euphoria, that uh, Cold War will lead to warm peace, maybe even hot peace. Yeah. But with respect to Japan-Russia relations, uh, on the economic front, on the diplomatic front, there are some improvements, visible improvements, uh, that both sides welcome. But they haven't been strong enough to turn their bilateral relationship into what I would call normal relationship mm -hmm. for several reasons, one of which is the continuing unsuccessful negotiation mm -hmm. over the sovereignty claims uh, both countries have to the so-called northern islands, mm -hmm. northern territories of the southern Kurils. And to this day, virtually nothing has happened despite the rhetoric of improving relations between the two countries despite the rhetoric of uh, some new ideas and initiatives on both sides, mm -hmm. including economic projects on the disputed islands, uh, they're extremely small scale, and they have really facilitated broadening of uh, contact among business communities or even local communities between Russians and, and, and Japanese. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another reason why Russia has been very limited in its inroads into the Japanese uh, social uh, psyche is that uh, very few Japanese have uh, speak r uh, Russian. Sure. And very few Russians speak Japanese. Yeah. So there's a huge language barrier. Mm -hmm. Plus, they do come from different cultural civilizational backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So uh, they try to in they interpret the behavior of the other side according to the behavior or code of their own culture. Yeah which leads to a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, and uh, so there are definitely cultural barriers between the two, country, two countries and two peoples. Also, the business culture is quite different in Russia than in Japan. Yeah. So even though they may have uh, commercial interests, material interests that could bring them together, uh, the, the language they speak within their business culture is mm -hmm. quite different. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, barriers there as well. And then this territorial dispute continues to cast a dark shadow on uh, prom potentially promising uh, uh, development of uh, uh, commercial type, uh, with the exception of uh, raw materials from the eastern Siberia and the Russian Far East that are imported now to, to Japan, mm -hmm. natural gas and uh, timber. And of course, fisheries that the Japanese have an insatiable appetite for, yes. <laughs> uh, which all turns into sushi. <laughs> and I'm sure you enjoyed it tremendously in Japan. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. So there are some areas in which the two countries can engage, have been engaged uh, in uh, with each other. But uh, when it comes to the territorial dispute, which has a lot to do with the national identity mm -hmm. of the Russians and of uh, those Japanese who used to live there or their uh, descendants who are now back in Japan. Uh, some of the people that we interviewed in Sapporo, for example, mm -hmm. who were former residents of uh, Habomai, the small uh, group of islands, told me, I, I, we asked them, if Russia returns your island, will you go back there? And they said, we will, but only to visit our ancestral uh, cemeteries. Oh, wow. So We don't want to live there. Yeah, there's no reclamation. There's no need to reclaim it in that way. Right, right. Huh. Plus, uh, they're comfortably living in Japan, so why would they <laughs> go to this Tiny desolate <laughs> island? Uh, you know, very pro uh, forbidding weather and climate and very few uh, economic opportunities other than fishing, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so political reconciliation, even if it is achieved with respect to some of these islands, uh, I don't think it'll drive, become a huge driving force for bringing in Japanese and uh, uh, who might engage you know, with Russians on extensive uh, scales. So we are talking about a small scale reestablishment of Japanese foothold uh, on the islands that would help improve you know, Russian-Japanese relations overall, but it would have ma uh, little material impact mm -hmm. on both sides. But now uh, the Russian Far East, particularly these islands, have uh, gained some significance in military terms given the uh, deteriorating relationship between the United States and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, 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 and uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. Because the Russians see Japan as an ally of the United States, which is true. Yeah. They basically see Japan as a uh, junior brother at best, <laughs> or maybe even a puppet <laughs> of the United States. So when they see uh, US presence, uh, military presence in the Far East, including in Japan, mm -hmm. they're afraid that the Americans might play some of their uh, troops or facilities, listening posts perhaps, uh, uh, on the islands if the islands are returned to Japan. And the Japanese would not be able to say no, yeah. even if they wanted to demilitarize those islands. Because according to Russian perception of Japan, Japan is uh, at, at best a junior partner to right. the United States in their uh, security treaty arrangement. So, so for Russia, these these islands are more to sort of secure their own security as it were like it also there's no there's not much economic like bonus to them as well having these islands it's just sort of becomes this interesting dispute over what feels like nothing yeah there are about 20 25000 uh, russians living on the smaller of the islands oh, okay. uh, basically uh, military related folks mm -hmm. uh, so, so they're not really there for you know business yeah. economic engagement prosperity mm -hmm. uh, those Russians who live on the larger islands are divided between civilian and military personnel. Mm -hmm. But those are islands, uh, Iturup and uh, Kuneshir, mm -hmm. will never be returned to Japan. I'm pretty well convinced. Because the Russians see those islands as uh, you know, legitimate spoils of war mm -hmm. uh, in which they engaged against the Japanese. Right. And they see the war against Japan in the context of anti fascism mm -hmm. war. So they see, uh, they remember millions of Russians or Soviets uh, meeting their ultimate fate uh, on behalf of their nation. And uh, these are small you know, islands and small spoils of the war, but justified and legitimate territories that they have gained uh, since the end of the Second World War. Uh, so if they were to return, if Putin or somebody else were to return those islands to Japan, they would come under serious uh, you know, criticism from the domestic audience. Do you have any predictions of how it'll go, like where the islands will go ultimately? The best the Japanese could hope mm -hmm. is for the smaller of the islands, Habomai and Shikotan, to be returned to Japan on the basis of the 1956 joint declaration. Mm -hmm. But the Jap that declaration does not make any specific reference to the other islands. Ah. So the Russians would say, well, we are justified in conceding our sovereignty to just to these small islands mm. back to Japan, but the other islands have never been uh, agreed to uh, as a potential uh, recovered territory for the Japanese. So we're, we're fine with that arrangement. <laughs> and uh, it seems as though Prime Minister Abe has 
reconciled himself with the idea that the other two islands are highly, highly unlikely to be returned to Japan, at least during his term in office. Mm -hmm. but so speculation is that he would sign a peace treaty on the basis of the return or promised return of uh, the smaller of the islands. But uh, that would have some backlash in Japan, particularly among the more nationalist mm -hmm. elements of the Japanese public, because they continue to believe that all of these islands should be returned to Japan. Right. But for the younger generation in Japan, they don't really care. No, <laughs> they have no material or even sentimental attachment yeah. to these islands. Keep those islands. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Right. Um, can we let's uh, chat a little bit about you know what to look forward to from you? What have you been working on that maybe will be published in the next few years? It's actually uh, there's a book project that uh, Professor Gaia uh, Christofferson, who mm -hmm. was the chair of our panel is putting together, uh, to which my paper will be uh, contributed as a chapter. Uh, I'm also working on another book project, which is related to U.S.-Japan relationship, U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia, U.S.-ASEAN, U.S.-Australia relationship. Wow. And uh, I, I don't think Russia will be prominently featured mm -hmm. uh, in this context, but my contribution on uh, U.S.-Japan relationship will have some references to uh, the Russia factor mm -hmm. uh, and re make references to the islands issues as well. Because uh, I don't know if you know this, in 1956 when the Soviet Union and Japan uh, issued a joint uh, declaration mm -hmm. normalizing their relationship, at least restoring diplomatic relationship, mm -hmm. Japan was almost ready to sign on a peace treaty on the premise that the Soviets would return only two of the four disputed islands. Mm -hmm. And when the Americans learned of this, they said, no, you should insist on all islands. And if you don't, we will not return Okinawa to you. And to the vast majority of the Japanese, Okinawa is much more important than these you know, desolate islands. Yeah, that's, yeah. So they changed their position and mm -hmm. began uh, demanding all islands, knowing that the Soviets will never agree to this. Hence, the absence of a peace treaty since then. And now the deterioration of relations between Moscow and, and uh, Washington, again, is interfering in the possibility of uh, Japanese-Russian reconciliation. So the prominent presence of the United States has had historical impact on Russia-Japan relationship. So unfortunately, that's the reality of, of the Asia-Pacific world. So my contribution to this volume would be including references to this historical incident and then unfortunate uh, recurrence right. <laughs> uh, in the present context. Well, that sounds fascinating. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, we'll hope to hear from you again soon if you ever come by uh, Austin. Okay. I'm actually moving to Hawaii oh. <laughs> next next summer. I'm retiring, actually. Oh, my goodness. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Slavic Connection. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Ms. Dina Smeltz. She's a Senior Fellow of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Her work focuses on mass 
public and elite surveys on Central and Eastern European, Arab, Muslim, and South Asian regional attitudes towards political, social, and foreign policy issues, among others, as well as qualitative research into those topics. Dina, welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here, Colin. Thank you. So I was hoping we could start off with just a brief overview of your background and experiences in this research because it is quite extensive. Sure. Um, I studied at the University of Michigan. I was working on a, a master's in Russian East European studies, and um, I was focusing a lot on sociology, and one of my professors suggested that I pair that up with um, public opinion polling because... I didn't know it at the time, but the University of Michigan has one of the strongest programs in public opinion research. So by the time I graduated, I was lucky enough to actually get hired um, by what became the State Department. It was a different agency that was folded into the State Department. And I worked mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, a lot in the Balkans and in Western Europe as well. Um, at the time, we talked about them separately. And uh, I did that for 15 years. I did a lot of public opinion polling in post-conflict areas like uh, Kosovo and Bosnia. Um, I did a lot of surveys around Central and East European attitudes toward NATO, joining NATO, helps uh, sort of gauge the increase in public support for joining NATO and the willingness to take on the responsibilities of NATO membership. So that was a really cool, inspiring, and optimistic time to be working on public opinion in Eastern Europe. Um, and we also looked at them joining the EU and democratization and things like that. Uh, eventually, because I became very proficient, or perhaps because nobody else wanted to do the work, um, I became known for dealing with a lot of post-conflict situations. And when we invaded Iraq, I ended up moving on to the Middle East portfolio. But what's been great in the last few years, um, I left the State Department and now I work for an independent nonpartisan think tank, uh, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And I've been able to return to uh, doing surveys between uh, looking at opinion among Russians and Americans on a range of foreign policy issues through a great grant from the Carnegie Foundation. So it's been amazing to come full circle, and it's great to be part of the Slavic Studies Association again. Came back home to Eastern Europe. Yes, exactly. Great. Um, so what you're here to present is a paper um, that you co-authored with mm -hmm. Lily Wojtiewicz, uh, which is Russia's Expanded International Role, Views from Russia and the U.S. Yeah, I'm actually here to do two papers. Okay. That is one of them to talk about our surveys on uh, both sides, the Russian side and the American side, and where opinion stands right now in the bilateral relationship. And the other one is a roundtable, and that is looking at whether the Crimea consensus has dissipated. Um, so that is... a phrase that's used of to describe how when Putin annexed Crimea and in the post years after with um, also the conflict in eastern um, eastern Ukraine that the public seemed or people view the public as rallying around Putin giving him really high levels of support and approval and then recently those numbers have been going down on the approval ratings on domestic issues and also the protests that have been happening so how so people are analyzing uh, there's a series of us on the round table analyzing how that's playing out 
in public opinion in Russia. Interesting. And what have yeah. you found the causes behind the shift? So it's interesting because there are shifts on the domestic side. I'm looking at the foreign policy side, okay. and there isn't a lot of shift on the foreign policy side. People, Russians still have majority approval for Putin and his foreign policy. It's a little bit down from when, you know, from the high euphoria of retaking Crimea, but support for annexing Crimea is still super high. They still see more benefits than harm to it. Um, support for endeavors like Syria are not as popular, but they're not really going down a lot. And, um, and Russians really see the status of their country having improved since Russia has taken a more activist role and a more aggressive role in foreign policy. So they really, in the 1990s, there were polls conducted um, early on, and uh, the Levada Center in Russia found that what there, th there were three things that Russians really wanted in the early 90s. They wanted to end the war in Chechnya, they wanted to stabilize the economic situation, and they wanted to return Russia to a great power status because of the humiliation of the um, post uh, the end of the Soviet Union. And so now Russians really sense that their country has increased respect around the world. And even though they may see some economic downsides to that and also relations with the United States have become kind of collateral damage, they still really support the current foreign policy. Interesting. So it seems the things that are shifting their opinions are more the sort of dinner table issues, domestic stuff, and that foreign policy is actually more positively viewed. Maybe counteracting that in a way? Um, I don't know if it's counteracting. I think they don't follow it as closely. And um, I, I can see from polling they're following it less closely now than at the height of the retaking of Crimea. Right. So, um, um yeah, so I think it's partially just that the bread and butter issues affect people more uh, directly. So like the pension reforms and things like that, you know, affect how you feel about your household um, finances and your future where what's going on around the world. First of all, it, it depends a lot on what kind of media you consume, but also right. how interested people are in it. So I think right now people aren't making the connection with oh, we have economic problems. Is it because we're spending all this money building a bridge um, or you know, abroad or uh, that we're doing things in Syria that should be spent here at home instead? I don't know that people are making that connection yet. Interesting. Do you think they might make that connection? Are there other periods where they have connected? I, do, I don't know if they have or I, I actually haven't been following it for that long. I can't. Maybe uh, the in, when the Soviets were engaged in Afghanistan, militarily involved in Afghanistan, that was a real traumatic time for Russians. Um, so perhaps if it got to that level of feeling like, wow, this has been dragging on for so long, um, and it's not making our country look great again, um, that then perhaps it could have an impact. So your paper addresses the Russian view of Americans, but also Americans' view of Russians. Right. How have you seen that evolving in recent years? So the most interesting thing about that is that we have new partisan dimensions 
to views of Russia, which we never saw before. Right. So um, I think the issue of Russia now has a tinge of Russia kind of equating Russia with Trump to some degree um, that because of the interference in the American elections. So uh, Americans are more negative now toward Russia than they have been since the Cold War period, and it's been going on for a long time, um, and since Ukraine, basically. Um, and Americans don't trust Russia. Russians don't trust Americans, and they both want to limit the influence of the other country. But before the annexation of Crimea, Americans tended to want to cooperate with Russia. And now they try, now they say the opposite, that they would prefer to limit uh, Russia. But it's Democrats who now want to limit working with Russia and cooperating with Russia, where before they were the ones more likely to want to cooperate and the Republicans are the other way around. The other really interesting thing is that uh, most Americans think Russia did interfere. They believe our intelligence agencies, but Republicans tend to not believe it, where Democrats do by large majorities. So the Russian intervention in U.S. elections has created a big partisan split um, on an issue that was really pretty bar bipartisan before this. So right now it's the the bilateral relationship looks pretty dim from a public opinion side anyway. And in the past, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia has has rested heavily on the the rapport and relationship between American, the American president and the Russian president. Right. And now everything's quite complicated on that level. There's not a lot of diplomatic dialogue going on. There's pulling out of treaties, um, you know, arms control treaties. And there's not a lot of space where they're engaging a lot. So this conference is kind of great. I was really thrilled to see how many researchers and scholars have come all the way from Russia to participate. So I think it's really important and it's terrific to see such a great turnout. Yeah, your experience as ACs has been good so yeah. far? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah the panels a... have been great. And like I said, I the last... Um, I just didn't feel like there was as much of a big Russia, con Russian contingent as this year. I feel like I, it could just be my anecdotal sense of things, but um, yeah, it's great to see the exchange. Yeah, I can't really speak. This is my first time here. Um, I have the first time attendee ribbon on my name tag and everything, but um, it definitely does feel like a better space for conducting international conversations than Twitter. Yeah. Definitely. So, There's only so much you can say in 140 characters. And, right. And a thread. I mean, I know you can do a thread, but... Well, they put it up to 280 now, so maybe it is an actual legitimate <laughs> platform for diplomatic exchange. Well, yeah. I have views on that, but it, that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> As you've done this polling work in different areas, have you felt it easier or harder at different points to come up with surveys based on the location you're doing the polling? In? Yes, definitely the sampling. Well, there's there's different aspects of what makes things easier. So in the United States, for example, let's start there. It's becoming harder and harder to do survey work because people aren't wanting to participate and the response rates are very low. So the 
the challenge there is to draw a sample that appropriately represents um, the entire U.S. population. So that includes people who might not have internet. And so if you're doing an online poll like we do, we have to make sure we use an organization that arranges for them to have internet access for the time when they're taking our polls. So that's one example. And you have to weight the data um, usually. Um, and that means you have to have a good starting sample so that when you weight it, it doesn't exaggerate any problems in your sample. So that's the U.S. In a place like Iraq, where I have worked, it creates a whole range of issues because, um, especially right after the war, there were areas that you had to remove from the sample because there was too much damage or it was too dangerous to go in. And in a culture where a man talking to a woman could be an issue. You had to make sure that we had women interviewers speaking to women interviewers, male interviewers speaking to male interviewers, but also to make sure that the man of the household wouldn't necessarily try to tell the woman how to answer or answer himself. So there's all kinds of problems there. With Russia, the issue is, um, I would say, very difficult because of the climate for independent polling. Um, we are really lucky that we have been able to work out a partnership with the Levada Center, but they are labeled a foreign agent. They have to, on their website and on their reports, have to, to say that they've been labeled as such. So it hasn't necessarily hurt their credibility to do independent autonomous polling but it creates a difficult environment when it's the only one it's the only organization really left that can be fully independent but they're still considered non-independent by yes other governments i'm not sure who's requiring um, to be labeled that way well the the russian government requires them to be labeled that way in russia other other researchers know that they have taken pain, first of all, to remain independent because they used to be part of uh, SIOM, which is a Russian polling organization that's now run by the government, not independent. But they, the people that started the Lovada Center just left that one and started a new center so that they could remain independent. So there's a lot of different ways you can tell objectively by the work that they do and the way that they report their data. Um, that they're independent, but probably the the biggest step that they are independent is because they were labeled this foreign agent that the government does not um, approve of their work. Right. So they're not under following necessarily the right. party, so to speak, line the on the of government Moscow. line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Kremlin line. They're doing their own thing. Yeah, we've been really fortunate to work with them. They're a great, brave, courageous group of researchers. Yeah, sounds like a great partnership. Yeah, yeah, I would recommend looking at their website for sure. Yeah. And any scholars, students looking to write about Russian public opinion, they've got great trends. We have some too. Happy to share. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think I just have one more question. Okay. As you've got such this ex an extensive career, 
Um, you've had a couple of, you've been interviewed before, including by Larry King. Right. So my last questions are between me and Mr. King, who's a better interviewer, <laughs> and why is it me? Um, I'm going to say you didn't have to look at your notes. So that's kind of a nice, you don't, you didn't have to put on makeup before. <laughs> It's so, very subtle. It doesn't show up on the podcast, yeah, so I don't have yeah, to do it. But much. I think you're both. I mean, he said years on you, and you're and you're holding your own, Colin. Okay, great. Well, appreciate <laughs> the compliment. Thank you very much for coming on, Dina, and hope to hear some more about Russian polling in the future. Great. Be happy to do so. All right. Thanks. Bye. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.